Okay, you guys can turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be continuing on with the, the story of Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul. I'm going to tell you right now that I'm going to keep mixing those names up today as I was writing them. Half the time I wrote Saul, half the time I wrote Paul. It's the same guy. You'll figure it out, but hopefully I'll, I'll try to uh, be consistent here. Last week, we, we looked at this amazing conversion of Saul, and this week we're going to be looking at the amazing acceptance of Paul into the family of God. Saul, if, if, you're, if you're not familiar with, with this guy, he was an extremely zealous man who thought that he was serving God by trying to track down every follower of Christ and, and, um, and wipe them out. He wanted to wipe out Christianity. That was his sole mission at this point in life, was to completely wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. But God, in a very compelling way, let him know that that wasn't his plan, <laughs> that in fact he was an enemy of God, and that by hurting Christians, he was actually persecuting God himself. When, when, when Jesus uh, confronted Paul, he said, Saul, why do you persecute me? I think it's, it's kind of interesting to see how Saul thought he had clear sight and clear vision and, and thought that uh, he was doing God's will, but he was completely spiritually blind. And God not only proved that to him by striking him physically blind, but, but you know, he got his attention in several ways. You see this kind of um, this mighty Paul, unstoppable, and, and God literally knocks him on his keister. I think we can say that in church. And, and, and humbles him. I mean, he's sitting in the dirt. He's blind. He's helpless. He has to actually be led into town. The, you know, the terrifying Paul, they've got to lead him into town because he can't even see now. And I just find it so, you know, just to see the power of God and, and how he's able to take anybody and, and turn them. And so we see this drastic turn of events as, as Paul, you know, and you kind of wonder what's going through his mind right now. He's got, he's blind. He's got three days. He's told to wait for further instructions as he goes into Damascus. And I'm thinking that would have been a really long three days to sit there blind, knowing that everything you believed your entire life, everything you were doing was completely wrong and backwards. And now he's, he's kind of sitting there waiting to hear from God. So that's where we pick things up today in verse 10 of Acts chapter 9. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. I like that it tells us that he's praying. I'm thinking, of course, yeah, you bet he was praying. That's what I would be doing right now. Lord, I don't know what his prayer sounded like, but I would have been curious to hear it. I know my prayer would have been something like, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, and, and I've, I've sinned against you in a way that I never realized I had. And, and I, I hope that you'll forgive me, and I hope that you'll know that I fully believe now that you are the Son of God, and I won't persecute you any longer. Um, we don't know what his prayer was, but but of course he was praying. God tells Ananias that he's going to find Saul praying to him. And in verse 12, he, he, he tells Ananias that he's also given Paul a vision. And I think that's kind of neat. He gives Paul this vision of Ananias coming to him too. So you've got these two guys that are, that are kind of in, a, in an awkward situation. We'll talk more about Ananias in a minute. And probably a little uncomfortable with this whole thing. And God gives them kind of these dual visions so that they, and I'm a kind of guy that likes, I like to kind of, know what's happening. I like to know the plan a little bit. And I think God, this is so kind of God to give them these, these little glimpses um, so that they can, they can be prepared a little bit. 
And I just see the God's, God's kindness in this. And we're going to see the same kind of dual vision or double vision take place in chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. Same kind of thing. They're about to, God's arranged this meeting. And before they meet, he gives them just kind of a little preview of coming attractions so they can kind of be at, at rest a little bit. So he gives, uh, he gives Ananias like an address to go to. Uh, you know, I always think of like, you know, okay, you punch it into your phone, you know, straight street. And, uh, and then it gets kind of, kind of dicey from here. He tells him to, to go to the house of Judas. <laughs> I'm just thinking, come on, Lord. I mean, can't it be a guy named Mike or something? I mean, Judas is the guy's name. That's where I have to go. But it gets worse from there. Go to the house of Judas and locate a guy who's determined to rid the earth of every follower of Christ. All right. Did you get that, Ananias? <laughs> it's like, you can kind of almost hear Ananias' gulp. What was that last part again? I think we might have a bad connection, Lord. It sounded like you just said, you know, are you sure? He asks Ananias to do something way outside of his comfort zone. It's risky. It's flat out dangerous. And I just want to point out that sometimes God will ask us to do things that make no sense to us. And that's okay because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust in his plans and his purposes and know that he's a good father who's looking out for us. And you see this this uh, this thing here in in verse thirteen. It's clear that Ananias was not comfortable with this idea at all, and, and so he even I like how he especially he kind of fills in the details a little bit for God, um, just in case God didn't know the whole th- the whole complexity of the situation. You know, we we do this kind of thing. I do this often when I'm praying. It's like Lord, I've I've really thought this through. And I've kind of narrowed it down to what I think is really the best, you know, and I don't know if you're seeing what I've come up with here, but you're welcome, you know, (laughs) and you kind of see Ananias doing this, I think, here. Uh, Verse 13, it says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. It's like, you know, see, I mean. See what we're dealing with here? Are you sure about this plan of yours? And and truthfully, Ananias is not being overly dramatic here. All of this is extremely accurate. This is exactly what's happened. Saul got written approval from the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and to, to literally hunt down and bind every Christian that he could find and bring them back to Jerusalem to, to be imprisoned or worse. And so I like God's answer back to him in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He calls him a chosen instrument. This this man Saul, this terrorist, God says is my chosen instrument. It's like he's a reveille bugle that, that God is going to use to go call out the Gentiles and kings and, and, and the Jewish people that, that he wants God to, or Paul to call out to. He's basically telling Ananias, you've got nothing to worry about. He's mine now. And I have plans for him. And in verse 16, he kind of adds this interesting little addition. You know, he's my chosen instrument. And what that means, just so you know, Ananias, what that means is he's now going to be on the opposite end of the suffering that he's been doling out to to Christians. And I don't know if he said that to, like, if, if Ananias had this thing in his mind of like, well, this isn't fair, you know, where's the justice, Lord, in this? And I don't know if it's that, or or if he just wants him to know that, you know what? I know I know this man. I know who he is. I know what he's done. And I know how I plan to use him. And I also know how much he's going to have to suffer for aligning with me. Not, not suffer in the sense of punishment from God, because Jesus takes the punishment for our sins. 
But when you align with Christ, suffering can happen. And Paul certainly did suffer more than most of us ever will know um, or, or have to. But he counted it a privilege to do so. I read Paul's writings sometimes and I, I see what he went through. And I'm just thinking, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like, are you sure you know what that means, Paul? It's like, that's that's inconceivable, right? Thank you. I didn't say it like, like Vecini, but that's what I thought in my head. Inconceivable. How can, how can he rejoice in his sufferings the way he did? How can he count it, you know, for the sake of Christ, I get to suffer. And Paul saw that as a privilege somehow. And I love that about him. So um, Ananias gets this word from God to go, and he trusted God. In verse 17, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Um, Ananias believed what God had had told him. And, and we know that, first off, because he went to Straight Street, right? He went and found the house. He went and found Paul. So we know he believed him because he went and did that. He didn't got, do, do like what Jonah did or what I probably would have done and been like, see ya, you know, and gone the other way. He went. So we know he believed God in that sense. But we also know that he believed God because of the way he addresses this guy. He walks into the house and he says, Brother Saul. He calls him brother. Uh, Just like that. Public enemy number one becomes his brother. That's amazing. Saul is, is filled with the Holy Spirit. His eyes are opened. He rises and he gets baptized. He gets what? He gets baptized. Right? Just like we saw a couple of weeks ago with the Ethiopian eunuch. He believes... And then what does he do? He gets baptized. And I, I like this, this immediacy of what you see here. Uh, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to rehash it a lot. But I'm so excited that today we have roughly 10 people, mostly youth, that are going to go and get baptized because of their belief in who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's one of the most amazing things that, that we see as a church. There's something, and I don't want to get crazy here, but there's just something mysteriously powerful and wonderful about seeing somebody be baptized. And so, again, I'm just going to plead with you, if you, if you, even if you had plans today, cancel them and come to this. It'll be worth it. All right. So not only does Paul not waste any time before getting baptized, he also doesn't waste any time before telling people about Jesus. Immediately, he just starts proclaiming Christ. And verse 20 says, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. That's quite a change from what he had been saying. And all who heard him was am- were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And is he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Right? Isn't this that guy? Yeah, that's definitely him. And yeah, that's definitely what he came here to do. <laughs> but that ain't what he's doing. He's doing the exact opposite of that. Now he's, he's telling everybody that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 22 says, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed... The Jews plotted to kill him. <laughs> I just find this so, you know, 
that he's convincing them in a way from the scriptures that Jesus is the son of God. It says that they didn't, they couldn't, they couldn't argue with him. So what do you do next? Well, let's kill him. <laughs> it's just like, we can't argue with that. Guess we're going to have to kill you. Anyway, sorry. Verse 24, he says, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I just, this is like born identity stuff. You know, I can just picture the music, you know, dun, 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 dun. I know that's Mission Impossible, but that's, I don't know the born identity song. You know, they're just lowering him down in a basket and Paul's running off. And it's so cool, you know, but, but what you see this, this transition and the shift now that the hunter is now the hunted. Paul's life is never going to be the same again. And that means on one hand, it's like, okay, it's a little terrifying. He's on the run, but he has Christ now. All right. What they do next is they send Paul to Jerusalem. But not surprisingly, the disciples there had the same skeptical reaction that everybody else had about Paul, Saul. There you go. I told you I was going to do it. Get off my back. I told you I was going to do it. So verse 26 says this. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Uh, they just thought this was a sneaky trick. And it actually would have been a really good idea if you want to infiltrate a group that you're trying to, you know, wipe out. This is a pretty good plan if, if, if that was the plan. Um, you know, pretend to be one of them, you know, and then just kind of take them all out one at a time. Uh, it would have been pretty weird for them to have your biggest enemy walk into church and just kind of say, I'm one of you guys now. <laughs> you know, what, what do you do with that? It's like, yeah, right. But that's, that's, so that's what you see. And David reminded me this week when we were talking a little bit about this, that when we started the door eight years ago, we were teaching through the book of Acts and we were in this text. And uh, there was a guy named Galen that showed up the very day we were in this text. And Galen was, was a guy that uh, we, we kind of heard about through our boys. Our boys had, they were living in an apartment together. Not all of them, but a few of them were. And, um, they'd recently told us about this guy. He was just fresh out of prison. He was uh, a little crazy, maybe, maybe a lot. He was scary looking. He was muscular and tattooed and bald. Um, kind of looked like the lead singer of midnight oil, just to give you a visual. And, and this, this guy had been making some seriously terrifying threats to our, to our, to our boys because they'd gotten to a, a disagreement or a scuffle with his boy. So all we really knew was that this guy was, was extremely bad news. And then that morning, David's son Gage comes to us and says, Hey, I invited Galen to come to church today. And he said, he's going to come. <laughs> I'm just thinking, well, well, that's fantastic. Thanks Gage. You know, a little evangelist, you know, that's just, that's perfect. I, uh, you know, David and Doug were pretty scared, but I calmed them down. Might have gone the other way. The amazing thing was that God had a plan, <laughs> right? Uh, Galen came that, I don't know why he came that day, but I know that as we met him that day, uh, Galen determined that he needed to recommit his life to Christ. He had earlier on in life and he'd gotten off track and, and somehow he comes and, and at the door, something resonated with him. And, and we were people that he could relate to. And, and he stuck around, committed his life to Christ, stuck around, became a beloved brother to us for, for quite a while. And then he ended up moving on. Now he's in Texas and he's, he's still following the Lord there. 
but I, you know, when you read this story, I remember thinking when this guy came in, it's like, yeah, right. Of course you're, you're one of us now. Um, but the gospel has the power to transform anyone, no matter how bad they are. Some of you have people from your past that if they knew that you were sitting in here today would just go, yeah, right. No way. That's what's happening. And I have those people in my life. I always think, you know, what if my schoolmates, you know, the people that kind of knew me then saw me now, what would they think? And I, I just thought, I think they wouldn't believe it. I think they would say, no, there's no way. Um, my 35th uh, high school, I know that sounds, 35th high school reunion is coming up this next summer. They've never invited me to any of them. And it's not like I'm hard to, it's like a pretty common name. I'm easy to find. I'm in the phone book or, you know, <laughs> never been invited to one. Um, and I know why I was, I was just bad news. I was, I was the kind of guy you don't invite, you know, places like that. And I don't I kind of want to just go there and crash it this summer, you know, find it and go there and just see what, what happens, you know, because I know it would just, and I don't want to do it in a way to, I just, I don't know. There's something about, I want people to see what God has done. Not what, what I've done, not what, not me. I just want them to see what God has done. And I know it would blow their minds. So pray about that. Maybe that's something I'll do. Well, fortunately, um, God has Barnabas's in the world of his church. And Barnabas comes along with Saul to vouch for him. (laughs) And Barnabas is a guy they did trust and they did believe. So verse 27, it says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. You see the same pattern again. The Hellenists, if you remember from before, were just Greek-speaking Jews. Um, they were the group that Paul had probably previously been a part of. Uh, we know that when Stephen uh, was martyred, that Paul was there giving approval. And um, in some ways, what you see happening here, if you think about what Stephen was like and the effect he was having and the, the, the bold proclaiming of Christ that he was doing, you almost see that Paul has... You know, the guy that was there giving approval to Stephen's death has now almost become like Stephen 2.0. He's now standing there talking to the Hellenists and saying, Jesus is the Christ. And, and of course, they have the same reaction to Paul that they did to Stephen. They want to kill him. Verse 30 says, And when the brothers learned that, that they planned to kill Paul, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus, which was Paul's hometown. And then this section ends on a very hopeful note. In verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's just a beautiful, you, you wouldn't necessarily put those two things together. <laughs> and, and the result of walking in the fear of the Lord and, and being comforted in the Holy Spirit somehow caused the church to multiply. So, that's our passage uh, this morning. Um, we kind of see Paul's crazy conversion and the church's crazy acceptance of this man who had been their greatest, his, their greatest enemy. And all of this is only possible because of Christ. This kind of stuff just does not happen apart from him. And that's what I want to focus our attention on this morning. Um, when Christ interrupts a person's life, stuff changes. And it's so easy to see this in what happened to Paul right? That's, he's like the poster child for, you know, d- dynamic conversion kind of thing. His, ex- his conversion was so extreme, but as, as Pastor David pointed out last week, if you're a Christian, your conversion was just as miraculous. Anytime somebody goes from blindness to sight, 
from darkness to light, from death to life, from sinner to saint. It's a radical conversion. And so regardless of whether you have a really great story or you were raised in a Christian home and, and don't even know when you became a Christian exactly, your conversion is extremely miraculous and radical. So we're going to look at four points that we see from the text today of how a radical conversion results in radical changes. The first thing that we see is that a radical conversion equals a new identity. The second one is that it equals acceptance into a new family. The third one is a radical conversion equals a new purpose. And the last one is that it equals a new message. So first one is a radical conversion equals a new identity. In a very real way, Saul of Tarsus died that day on the road to Damascus. The man who emerged from the wreckage of that event was not the same man that, that he was before. And people recognized it. You, you see that in the text. Isn't this the man? Isn't that the guy that used to, that they, they saw it. Yeah, but that's not him anymore. Everything had changed. And Paul would later write these words in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Everything was different. Everything was new for Paul. Saul of Tarsus had become Paul the Apostle. When we become a Christian, we're given a new identity that has new beliefs, which result in new behavior. And you see this so clearly in Paul, right? All of a sudden, he's this new man. All of his beliefs changed in an instant. And his behavior did the same thing because, you know, because of it. And I want to make sure you understand that all of this is a result of Christ. It's so clear that this is all of Christ, not us. Christianity is not self-improvement. It amazes me how many self-improvement Christianity books there are on the shelves today. Bestsellers. And I'm just thinking that's not what Christianity is. If there's a way for me to improve myself, why did Jesus come? We can't. Christianity is Jesus improvement, 100%, right? Galatians 2.20 says that we have been put to death on the cross with Christ, and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. That's the reality for a Christian. And this is part of why baptism is such a big deal. It's that recognition that the old is gone and the new has come. It's such a beautiful picture of somebody going down into death with Christ and coming up as a new creation, washed clean and forgiven. Paul getting baptized was a really big deal, by the way. He's officially changed teams. You know, this group called The Way that he hated so much, he's saying, that's my team now. That's what happened when he got baptized. All right, I've already given you a hard time about baptism, but come out and support the people who get baptized. <laughs> so the first thing is we see that a radical conversion equals a new identity, but it also equals acceptance into a new family. The moment that Paul believed he was adopted into the family of God, and that's why Ananias could walk in grab this guy and say, brother. One of the most amazing things about becoming a Christian is we gain an instant family. We even see that from people that come to visit or people that have only been here a couple of times. They come in and they already feel like they're among family members. There's nothing else like that. So many in the people or so many people in this world feel so isolated and so disconnected and they desperately want to be a part of something. And that's why stuff like you know, going to your local watering hole or, or joining up with something like CrossFit 
Um, you know, you want to go where everybody knows your name, right? The old song. Sorry if you got that in your head now, but I'm not going to say making the way. <laughs> we won't do it. But you do. You want to go where everybody knows your name. That's what we do. But, but those, those things can't offer you the, the family that Christ can because they don't have Christ, right? And CrossFit makes you exercise, I've heard. So, yeah. Yuck. Family looks out for each other through thick and thin. I, I love how you see immediately their enemy, Paul, Saul, they start to protect. They're, they're, they're getting them out of town safely. They're, they're risking their own necks for their brother immediately. That's crazy. Do you know how good it is to know that people have your back? I just, when I look out, you know, in this church and I see the, the people that I, I know and love so well, and I know you have my back and I have yours. And it's just, it's a special bond that you really can't explain. If one of us hurts, we all hurt. If one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. And we, we get to be in this together. That's one of the things I love about the sharing time is you see, you see this opportunity for us to, to do this, to be family together. I wish more people got the family part of Christianity. Um, I don't understand why people think it's a solo individual kind of thing. <laughs> it's just you're missing out. I'm just yesterday, you know, it was just a little quick story. We went to our, our uh, homeowners association, our annual meeting. So I had a, I had a fun morning. That's like, anyway, those aren't usually fun. That's was, you know, in case you've never been to one. Um, but there was just a large group of people there that I, that I've kind of acquaintances and people, neighbors, all these different people. But I, you know, there, I ran into two people from church there that day and it, it was just a, such a different thing. I saw Tanya and I saw Lily and immediately something happened in my heart. I just was so happy to see them. And I can't explain what it is, but the minute I saw them, it was like something different. And I love that. That happens if you're, if you're driving through town, you're having a bad day, you run into a Christian at Costco or wherever you're at, and all of a sudden just something happens. Something changes. That's the family of God. If you're a Christian, you have a family. <laughs> it's a weird family to be sure, <laughs> but it's the best family. Take full advantage of being a part of it. All right. The next one is that a radical conversion equals a new purpose. Paul's life was completely interrupted and upended by God. His agenda was torn up and rewritten. His to-do list was like, nope, all of that changed. When we come to Christ, we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. We now live for the purposes and plans of a God who loves us, and who wants what's truly best for us. God converted you for something. It's not just so that you get to go to heaven. He didn't just give you like, here's some free tickets, you know, enjoy. That's not, that's not what he converted you for. That's part of it for sure. We get, to, we get to be with him forever. But he has a purpose in mind for every one of us. Ephesians 2.10 says that there are good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. <laughs> he has works that he planned ahead of time for you to walk in good things. In a parallel passage of Paul's conversion found in Acts 26, Jesus tells Paul exactly what his purpose is. Listen to this. He tells Paul, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness of what you have seen and what I will show you. And then he goes on to explain why he wants him to go and tell people. 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. (laughs) That's a pretty important purpose. That sounds important. That was Paul's purpose. Guess what your purpose is? It's the same thing. And that's, that's basically what you see in the Great Commission. The same basic idea. God wants you to glorify him among the people that you're around. That means that, that somehow they see Christ in us. He wants us to make him known to others and what he's done known to others. That's, that's why we're here. When that's done, we get to go home. <laughs> and I, I'm looking forward to that. But until then, we have a purpose to let other people know who he is and what he's done. So the last one is that a radical conversion equals a new message. Paul's old message was that you could earn acceptance from God by zealously keeping the law, following the rules. That's what Paul believed firmly. It's a message that makes sense to our flesh, but ultimately it falls short of the goal. It's actually the opposite of the gospel. The law says do, the gospel says done. Our good works aren't going to cut it, but Jesus' good works will absolutely do the trick. So the message we take forth into the world is that Jesus did for us what we could never do ourselves. That's good news. I like the way John MacArthur puts it. He says, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your life so he could treat you as if you had lived his. (laughs) That's good news. That's so beautiful. Paul had been trying to accomplish salvation apart from Christ, and he couldn't have been more off track. He immediately started to spread the word that Jesus is the son of God who died to save people from their sins when he found out the truth. And I like that it says that he that he increased in strength or ability. So Paul went out. I mean, he immediately went out, but it, but it talked about how he just kept it increasing in strength. He kept getting better at it is kind of what I like to see there. And, I, and it gives me a little hope because I know a lot of us, we don't feel like we're very good at this. But keep telling people, keep keep going out, keep just keep it up. And, and, and eventually it's just going to hopefully get easier and easier to talk to people. It is awkward to talk to people, but it's the most loving thing and the most wonderful thing we can be a part of. By the way, Paul's message was largely just his story. That's what he said I want you to do. I want you to go tell people what you saw happen. Paul's story was I was an enemy of God one day. God confronted me about my sin. I repented. And now I know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And he just needed to go out and tell people that. Last week, David gave you guys homework. He asked you to write down your testimonies so that you can easily share it with others, just a snippet. I, I, you know, uh, I wrote you into my sermon, Mark. You're here. I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm telling it. Uh, I remember Mark, when we did this way back when at the old building, we, we encouraged everybody to do this. And he literally walked around with this wadded up piece of paper in his pocket. So if he was standing in line at the bank or at the grocery store or wherever, he would just pull it out and say, hey, can I tell you my story? <laughs> and people would be like, yeah, all right, sure. And he would just, he would tell him the story of how Christ interrupted his life and saved his soul. And he had this excitement. He couldn't wait to tell people. And I just loved it. It was like, I would never think to do that. That's just so obvious. Just walk around with a piece of paper and say, hey, can I tell you my story? People will say, sure, I want to hear a story. If you're a Christian, your story should sound remarkably similar to Paul's story. I was alienated, but I was given a new identity, a new family, 
a new purpose, and a new message. You know, when I first became a Christian, all of these things happened to me at once. Um, Christ just wrecked me. I was instantly a very different person. Anybody that knew me or saw me knew it. It was, it was that kind of conversion. I know not everybody's is that way. But I was a new creature who had new behavior and new desires that weren't there before. And none of it made any sense apart from Christ. I plugged into my new family, which provided this support. And it complemented my beliefs and, and, and my new identity in Christ. And it made a huge difference being a part of the family of God. I had a new purpose. I finally had a purpose. I don't know what I thought my purpose was before, but it was all about self, self-gratification, and it, and it stunk. It didn't, it didn't work. Now I got to serve and worship the Lord who loved me. And I was given a new message. The good news of a God who loved me and wanted a relationship with me, a sinner like me, that there's nothing that I would ever think, why, God, why would you want? Why would you want me? Why would you reach a hand down to me? I still don't know the answer to that, but he did it. This message is a message just like uh, Glenn said. Is it really Glenn Miller, by the way? That's awesome. Glenn Miller. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that, but that's pretty cool. Sorry. Sidetrack. I like what he said. This message is something we need to tell ourselves every day. You preach the gospel to yourself every day. Not because you need to be resaved every day, but because you just need to be reminded, this is who I am. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for me. And live in that reality. It's, it's the greatest thing we can, we can do is just to preach that message to ourselves every day and then share it with everybody who will hear it from you. All of these things kind of combine to create the perfect storm, by the way, for a Christian to be able to thrive and walk in newness of life empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, it, there's a lot of people out there that I, that I, I hear themselves, they, they call themselves Christians, but they're walking in an old identity. They're, uh, they're not hanging out with their family. They're, they're, they're hanging around with the old family. They're, they're not taking part of the new purpose God's given them at all. They're still part of the old purpose. And they're, they're definitely not out spreading the new message. They're, they're still believing the lies of the old message. And I, you wonder sometimes, you know, they, they say, I feel so dry. I feel so disconnected. And, and I, I just can't help but think that's like, Here's the answer. These things combined create this amazing ability for us to walk with the Lord and thrive in our walk with Him. So that's uh, that's what I have for today. It's 11.16. We're going to sing a couple of songs, and then we're going to go to a baptism. Father, I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly took our place that he was willing to go to the cross and suffer and die in our place for sin so that we could have a new identity, that we could be made new by believing in his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, it's such, it's such an amazing um, thing that, that we could never even imagine would, would, would draw us close to you and it would be the answer we're looking for. But thank you for providing Christ. Thank you for providing for this, this new family that we have. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you've made us a part of something that we, we didn't deserve, Lord, but, but it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to any of us. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that, that doesn't know what it's like to have these things. I just pray that now might be the time when in their heart they would fully surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Paul, you know, just had to humble himself and recognize who Jesus is. I pray, Lord, that people would finally do that. He is our King. He is our Lord. 
He is, he is, he is the, the one that we want to stand before one day as a friend and not a foe. So thank you, Father, again, for the time that we have to go and be a part of this baptism. Thank you for the lunch that, that you provided for us. We ask now that you bless it to our bodies, Lord, and we thank you for, for all that this is uh, uh, going to be today, Lord, and we're excited about it in Christ's name. Amen.